Well, I got up Monday morning and read the blog I usually read on Monday morning and uh, just found out about this horrific story from last Sunday, one week ago. Pastor Fred Winters went to the platform of the First Baptist Church of Maryville, Illinois, just like he does every Sunday, preparing to preach to the congregation the Word of God at their early service. And uh, just minutes into his sermon, a young man came walking up the center aisle and said a few words to him, pulled out a gun and shot him. And Pastor Winters was pronounced dead upon arrival at the local hospital. He leaves behind a wife and two precious daughters. Well, I probably don't have to tell you that hostility towards Christianity and Christians and churches is on the rise in our culture these days. And while Pastor Winters' murder might seem to be an extreme and an isolated case, have you noticed how tragic church-related incidents have actually been on the rise in our country over the last few years? Followers of Jesus here find themselves in the midst of a culture that is increasingly intolerant of our values and our lifestyle and especially our message of Jesus Christ. I think we all need to understand it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time before certain privileges that we have enjoyed under our Constitution will come under assault. And some say that they already are. And of course, persecution of Christians has been prevalent in other parts of the world for centuries. You probably are aware that tens of thousands of followers of Jesus Christ have suffered and died for their faith in other parts of the world. Jesus predicted nothing, nothing less than that. He told his followers, in this world, you will have tribulation. He said, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. And John wrote, do not be surprised if the world hates you. Perhaps that's why Jesus turned to his followers one day and said, look, you better count the cost. If you want to become one of my followers, there may very well be a price to pay, maybe even your life, so count the cost. Well, that's what was happening back in the first century to the first few generations of Christ followers. They were paying a price. They're holy lifestyle, their insistence that Jesus Christ was the only way to God irked people and incited hatred in people. As a result, they were paying a steep price for their faith in Christ and their allegiance to Jesus. And so Peter wrote them this letter. We call it First Peter. And we've been exploring it together here for the last six weeks or so. And I invite you this morning to take your Bible, if you have it with you, turn to First Peter chapter 4. And you can reach into your worship folder, pull that study guide out, and uh, you can follow along with us. Well, I don't know about you, but First Peter has been extremely challenging to me. And it's changing me. I, I can feel it. It's changing some perspectives I've had. It's changing some attitudes I've had. I really do want to be the kind of follower that Jesus is proud of. Brings a smile to his face. I really do want to look into his eyes one day and have no shame and no embarrassment, knowing that I continued to live for him even when it became hard or difficult or unpopular or even costly to do so. He's worth it, you know. He's worth it. He's worth living for. 
He's worth dying for. He is the precious treasure. It's worth selling all to obtain. By the way, next weekend, if you're interested, or even if you're not, I'm going to tell you what I think about the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that's out there and the TV preachers who proclaim it. I know some of you watch those guys and enjoy them. I know others of you listen to them and it's confusing, especially when you read 1 Peter. can't reconcile the two messages. So next weekend I'm going to give you my take on all that from the what it's worth department. Well, in his letter now, Peter is calling first century followers of Jesus and 21st century followers of Jesus to live a countercultural life, isn't he? To be countercultural, part of the counterculture. To live a life that is different from the prevailing lifestyle of the culture that we live in. And this is not the first time that we're going to be introduced to this. This has been a recurring theme throughout 1 Peter. You might remember back in chapter 1, verse 15, Peter said, Be holy. Live a holy life, even as your Father in heaven is holy. Set apart, devoted to God, different from the world. In chapter 1, verse 18, he said, Remember, you've been redeemed from that empty way of life that got handed down to you. You've been set free from that. You don't have to live that way anymore. In chapter 2, verse 11, he even called followers of Jesus aliens and strangers in this world. Sojourners, pilgrims, temporary residents here whose permanent citizenship is in heaven. And in chapter 2, verse 21, he declares that believers are called to called to follow their master, Jesus Christ, in submission and, yes, even into suffering. And so now in chapter 4, these first 11 verses that we're going to be looking at today, Peter makes the case that countercultural Christians also do three more things. And here they are. I'm going to give them to you right up front. Number one, they view dying, they view death as their ultimate triumph over sin. I'll explain that in a few moments. Number two, they say goodbye to the old sinful lifestyle of the past. They're done with it. And number three, countercultural Christians prepare themselves for living in the end times, in the last days. So let's pick it up in chapter 4, verse 1. Here's how it starts. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves. That's a military term. Armor up with this same attitude, or with the same attitude or mindset, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin, ceased from sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Point number one, countercultural Christians view dying as their ultimate triumph over sin. Now, Commentators struggle with these verses. They're difficult to interpret. Some of them believe that when Peter said, he who suffers in his body is done with sin, that he was talking about the purifying effect of pain and suffering in our lives. And certainly there's some truth to that. It's taught in other places of the Bible that that when God allows pain and suffering into our lives, it causes us to be more dependent upon him and it strengthens us against sin and temptation for sure. But I side with the commentators who say, no, we think Peter had something else in mind here. We think that he's talking about suffering in in reference to death. That when he says, he who has suffered in his body is done with sin, what he's saying is, 
He who dies is done with sin. That's what he meant back in chapter 3 and verse 18 when he said Christ also has once suffered for sin. Talking about his death, right? I believe they're right. Let's see if I can explain this. It probably needs to be said that one of the deepest desires and longings of every true Christian is to be free from sin, right? To be free from sin. I mean, we battle with it. We struggle with it, sin and temptation and addiction and all those things. Yes, we've been changed and we've become new creatures in Christ, but that new life is incarcerated in a body of flesh that the Bible calls the body of sin. And we struggle with sin. But because we've been redeemed, we long to be ultimately free from sin, don't we? I mean, that's a mark of a true Christian. You want to be rid of sin. You want to be free from it. You have a longing and ache for that. I think that needs to be said. Now, Peter says, he who suffers in his body is done with sin, or he who dies is done with sin. Think about it this way. When you die, you will be ultimately free from sin, won't you? You will shed this body that's been holding you back all these years. You will be ushered into eternity, into the presence of Christ. You will be given a new spiritual body that is free from sin, and you'll go, yes, I'm finally free free from sin. I was saved from the penalty of sin. During my life on earth, I was being freed from the power of sin. And now, in eternity, I'm finally delivered from the very presence of sin. Thank God. Now think about this. Peter was writing to people who, like Pastor Winters, didn't know which day might be their last. They were being persecuted. They were being oppressed. Some of them were losing their lives. And he's looking at them and he's saying, look, Arm yourself with the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. He was willing to die to be done with sin. You need to be willing to die to be done with sin because when you die, your moment of greatest tragedy is actually your moment of greatest triumph because you'll be graduated, you'll be promoted, and you'll be free from sin. Does this make sense? You see, the worst thing the devil can do to you is kill your body. That's the worst he can do. You say, well, that sounds really terrible. Think about it. When you leave this body behind, you will be ushered into the presence of Christ and you will be gloriously free of sin. And so Peter's saying, arm yourself. It's a spiritual weapon. Arm yourself with this mindset. Hey, if they kill me, if they take my life, I'm going to be with Jesus. And I'll be forever free from sin. Praise God. Countercultural Christians view dying as their ultimate triumph over sin. Victory. Victory over sin. So some of you are thinking about it. You say, wait a second. Jesus died to be free from sin? I thought Jesus didn't sin. And that is so true. In fact, Peter stated that in chapter 2, verse 21. He had no sin of his own. But he did have sin, didn't he? Ours. Chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body while he was hanging on the tree. He had our sin. Not only that, he was sinned against regularly when he walked this planet, wasn't he? Was he not maligned, abused, mistreated, misunderstood, misspoken of, rejected, beaten, tortured? Was not Jesus Christ subjected to the abuse and the sins of people against him? 
In addition to wearing our sins on that cross, and when did He become free of all of it? When He died. And Peter's saying, look, arm yourself up with that same attitude. Be willing to die for Jesus because when you die, you'll be freed from sin. You know what? That's a spiritual weapon that strikes fear into the heart of your enemy. If the worst he can do is kill you, and if you say, well, if you kill me, I'm going to be with Jesus and be free from sin, he doesn't know what to do with that. It's like you have neutered him. His, his chief weapon is rendered powerless in your life. If you understand what Peter's saying, nod your head like this. If you don't have a clue, go like this. It, it's, there's some depth here, okay? Countercultural Christians view dying as their ultimate triumph over sin. Now he's going to continue making his case that believers need to say goodbye to sin in their lives. Verse 3, pick it up with me. For you have spent enough time. I love this phrase. You've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They, pagans, think it's strange. You're weird that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. This is a word picture of a strong current. And, and that, you know, instead of flowing with them in the current, now you're swimming upstream. And they think you're strange. And they heap abuse on you. Verse 5, But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead talking about Christian martyrs, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. Point number two, say goodbye. Peter says, say goodbye to the old, sin-filled lifestyle. A couple years ago, a guy named Don got saved here in this church. Don was in his 30s, and when he got bit, he got bit hard. Don was a and he is a, a tough guy. He was kind of a self-made man, hard-drinking, hard-living kind of a guy. And Jesus ambushed him and invaded his life and humbled him and brought him to repentance and faith. Changed his life. Changed his life. Don basically burst into flames and started witnessing to everything that moves. <laughs> and it changed his whole, I mean, his whole lifestyle was radically altered. And I remember once I asked him about his zeal and his passion for Christ, and he said this to me. He said, you know what, Steve? I'm making up for lost time. All those years. All those years I spent just living in sin, living for myself. He said, he said I want every day to count for Jesus Christ now because I'm making up for lost time. And some of you were saved maybe later in life, and you look back on all those years or maybe decades, you go, you know what? I spent enough time. Live in the old life. I want to live for Jesus Christ now. I want to live for Jesus. Peter writes, look, you've spent enough time in that old pagan lifestyle. And then he describes it with these words. And he basically describes a lifestyle of hedonism. You know what that is? The unrestrained pursuit of pleasure. No boundaries, no fences. He uses words that describe sexual escapades, wild drinking parties, just think college spring break down at Daytona Beach or Cancun or someplace like that. 
That's the old lifestyle. And he mentions detestable idolatry, idol worship, which in that culture, those things were all mixed together. Drinking and sex and worship of idols were all intertwined. And Peter says, you know what? You had your fill of that life, didn't you? Was it really that great? Was it really all that it was cracked up to be? Speaking of uh, spring break revelry, I remember reading the story of a college co-ed on her way back to campus after a wild spring break down at the beach. Riding back in the car, she opened up a note that had been given to her by the guy that she'd slept with the night before. She thought it was going to be kind of a mushy love note. It read simply like this, Enjoyed last night, and oh yeah, welcome to the world of HIV. How about it? Was the old life really that great? Or was it over-promised and under-delivered? You know, something I've come to understand about this, some of you were saved out of that party lifestyle, weren't you? Out of that lifestyle of drinking and sex and unrestrained pleasure-seeking. Jesus saved you out of all that, and you know firsthand how empty that lifestyle was because you experienced it. If Jesus saved you out of that, would you just lift your hands? Say, that's my story. Jesus saved me out of that kind of a partying lifestyle. Okay, you put your hands down. But you know, others of us were shielded from all of that growing up. We were saved at like three years old. Grew up in Christian homes, Christian families with parents who wanted to, you know, shield us from all that kind of lifestyle and maybe a good church or maybe a Christian school. And, and so a number of us grew up not having lived that lifestyle firsthand. And we thank God that we were spared from it. We really do. But because we never experienced it firsthand, sometimes the world still has a little bit of a pull on us. Sometimes we, we feel like, you know, man, I never really got to have my fun. Kind of on the outside looking in. And there's, there's still an allure for some of us who never experienced it firsthand. This is true, is it not? Many of you find yourself in that situation. This is why you find good Christian kids sometimes after they get out of high school and leave home and get out from under their parents' thumb, sometimes they just go crazy. It's like, i got to check this out. <laughs> I've been shielded and protected from this all of my life. I don't have any firsthand experience. I want to go for it. I want to see what the world has to offer. I want to see if everything I've been taught is really true. And this happens. And I want you to know that if you're here today and you're kind of experimenting in the world, checking out all the things that it has to offer, because that was your case growing up, I, I understand that. Even Solomon, the supposed, supposed wisest man who ever lived, had a season of his life where he said, I'm going to check out everything the world has to offer. I'm going to check it out. And he had the means to do so, and he did. And he paid a steep price for it. And so will you. You will. In my judgment, you're better off talking to someone who actually lived that life, who was actually there, letting them speak honestly to you about the downside of that life, and perhaps steer you away from it. In my judgment, you're better off doing that. But if you just can't, if you just feel like, i gotta, I got to check this out for myself, i got to experience this, then okay. 
I want you to know something. When you get to the end, when it's empty, when you're sitting alone in some bar some night, and you're coming to your senses, I want you to know that Jesus Christ will receive you back. And we will too. Amen? We will too. I I believe God wants this to be a prodigal, friendly church. Where when people get to that point where they're sitting in the pig pen, eating the corn cobs, and they're saying, what am I doing here? What did I give up? Back in the Father's house, even my Father's servants have it better than I have it that you can turn from your sin and come running back to the Father, and He will receive repentant prodigals back every time. That took come running towards you. And may we be a church where prodigals can come home to the Father and to us. And to us. Now, if you were one of those people who was rescued out of that lifestyle that Peter talks about, He says something very interesting. He says, your old friends might not understand you anymore. It says, they think it's strange that you don't want to run with them anymore. Do the same things you used to do. Go the same places you used to go. The phrase, they think it's strange, means they are shocked, surprised, and even offended. They're like, you know, oh, you're too good for us now, huh? You don't want to hang with us anymore. You're all holy and everything now. This can happen, right? Anybody have this happen? You got saved and the old friends kind of turned against you? Thought you were strange or weird? Maybe they started to ridicule you? Maybe they felt guilty around you and started to pull away. Like, you make me uncomfortable now. Maybe they start making fun of you. It says they, they heap abuse on you. The original word in the Greek is blasphemeo. Sounds like our word blasphemy. They blaspheme you. They speak evil against you. Behind your back. Man, Joe or Mary, they just they don't want to hang with us anymore. They're different. Something's, something's different about them. They don't understand. They don't understand. Some of you might remember the old poem that was turned into a song called The Touch of the Master's Hand. Remember that? Wayne Watson sang it about 25 years ago. It's about a dusty old, out-of-tune violin that came up for auction and No one wanted it. No one bid on it until a master violinist stepped out of the crowd and walked up to the front, took that old violin in his hands, tuned it up slightly, and then played out a beautiful tune. And all of a sudden, the value of it went up, and the bids went into the thousands of dollars. And the next stanza reads like this. You know, there's many a man with his life out of tune, battered and scarred with sin, And he's auctioned cheap to a thankless world, much like that old violin. Then the master comes, and the foolish crowd, they never understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by one touch of the master's hand. It's true, isn't it? Sometimes people won't understand. You need to know, if you're contemplating today becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, becoming born again, becoming saved... Just know that your old friends might look at you differently. They might even turn on you. Now, hopefully God will use you to reach some of your friends for him as they see this new life in you and this hope that's in your heart. And maybe they'll ask you to explain the hope that is in you and you can give them a reason for that hope. 
Some of you have been able to lead your old friends or some of your old friends from the old gang to Christ. That's an awesome thing. But some may despise you. Some may turn on you. You need to know that. And Peter is, oh, let me say this. If that happens, it's not you. It's not. It's the Christ in you. It's the Christ in you that they're turning away from. It's not you. You need to know that. Peter is very clear. Everyone will have to give an account someday, he says. Everyone. You, I, all of our friends, everyone will stand before Jesus Christ one day and give account of our life to him, and in particular, how we responded to the gospel, the gracious offer of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Everyone will have to give an account. No one will escape that judgment. And as Pastor Brian explained last weekend, only those who are in the ark of salvation will be saved from the flood of God's judgment. Only those. Verse 6 here, it's a challenging verse to understand. I, I believe Peter is most likely talking about Christian martyrs. The friends and relatives of these folks that he was writing to, they had each known someone probably who had died for their faith, who had martyred, been martyred. The gospel was preached to them. They responded to it. They'd gotten saved. Then they were sentenced to death by an oppressive government. Judged according to men in regard to their bodies. In other words, killed. But he says, those same martyrs will live in their spirits forever with God because of their salvation. So Peter's given two instructions so far here. First, he says... View the prospect of dying for Christ as your ultimate victory over sin because when you die, you'll be set free from your body of sin. And second, say goodbye forever to the old life. Be done with it. Don't dabble around in it. Don't pick around in the scrap heap of that old life. You've spent enough time. Leave it behind you. Walk with Christ even if your old friends resent you for it. God will take care of those who turn on you and who speak against you. And then he turns even more serious in verse 7 when he declares this, the end of all things is near. That's pretty serious, isn't it? The end of all things is near. Number three, countercultural Christians prepare themselves for life in the end times. Life in the end times. Now, why did Peter say that the end of all things was near? The word end is the word Telos, it means the culmination or the consummation of all things is near. Well, I, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, I think G, uh, Peter knew, well, I know this. He knew that Jesus had predicted the destruction and the fall of Jerusalem. Peter was writing in the mid-60s, not the 1960s, the 60s. Within five years... Jerusalem would be wiped out, would be leveled. A dude named Titus with his Roman armies would sweep into town and just devastate Jerusalem. And Jesus had predicted it while Peter was standing there listening. Matthew 24, Jesus said, look, look at the temple over here, guys. Before long, not one stone will remain on another. It's going to get leveled. It's going to get wiped out. And I think Peter looked around at the increasing persecution and oppression of Jews and Christians by the Roman government, and he said, you know what? The end's near. We're not far away 
from that moment that Jesus was talking about when Jerusalem will be wiped out. The end of an era was closing in fast for Christians and Jews living in Israel. But beyond that, I think that Peter also understood that the death and resurrection of Messiah, that with that came a new era in God's prophetic timetable called the end times. You see, he didn't just say the end is near. He said the end of all things is near. And I think what he was saying is, look, we're in a new era now. The end times has begun. In God's prophetic timetable, Peter was now living in the end times, as has every generation since up to and including this very generation. It's a period in which we could say that Christ could come at any time. His return is imminent. There are no prophetic signs that have yet to be fulfilled before he comes. I'm trying to get uh, Jim Custer back to talk to us again this May. Dr. Jim Custer, do you remember him? Uh, noted prophecy expert here in town, and he was here last May. Some of you remember that and talked to us about where he felt we were at in God's prophetic time frame. And I'm thinking a lot has happened since last May. A lot has happened. So you can pray about that. We've put the ask out there, and I'm hoping that Dr. Custer will come back this May and give us where he thinks we are now in this end times. I think Peter is saying, hey, the end is near. We should be living every day as if Christ might return today, because he might. And so the logical question is, well, how should we be living then? How should we be living in light of the fact that Jesus could come back at any time? Should we pack up all our stuff and sell our houses or try to sell our houses and move to Colorado, move to the mountains and wait? Should we hunker down here behind our four walls in our little fortress here and just kind of wait it out till he comes back? Should we be stockpiling non-perishable items? Should we grab our friends and neighbors by the throat and say, you know, you'd better come to Jesus before it's too late. Should we demand that of them? Well, let's see what Peter says, okay? Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, he's going to tell us, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Would you circle that word? He said, we ought to be praying. Verse 8, above all, What does he say? Love. There's a second word to circle. Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Verse 10, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve. Would you circle that word? To serve others faithfully administering or stewarding God's grace in its various forms. I see three primary responses we should have to the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Do you see him? Pray, love, serve. He says, be clear-minded and self-controlled. Clear your head so that you can pray. The end is near. What should we do? Pack up, move to the mountains? No, pray. Pray. Pray about what? Well, I think it's a great time to be praying the Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Pray for the coming kingdom of God. Pray for God to sweep as many people into the kingdom of God before the day of the Lord comes, before it's too late. You know, in his next letter, 2 Peter 3, nine, he says, God is patient. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Pray! If you want to pray for the United States, we need prayer. Let me give you two things to pray for, repentance and revival. Pray for repentance and revival. Pray that our the people of our land would, would turn from their pride and from worshiping false gods and come back to the one true God. Say, why is all this happening in our economy? I don't, I don't know for sure, but I do know this. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. He said, my chief rival for your heart is money. And you can't serve two masters. You'll hate one and love the other, serve the one and despise the other. You've got to make a choice. And I don't know how you're praying these days, but I'm praying that God will do whatever it takes to bring a nation to its knees in repentance and revival. It's the only hope. It's the only hope for our land. That's to be our vertical priority as we live in the last of the last days. Pray, he said, pray. And then he says, love. Love each other deeply. It's the word agape. And he said this very same thing before in chapter 1, verse 22. It must be important. (laughs) The end is near, so pray to God and love one another more deeply than you've ever loved them. And then he gives a primary expression of love. He says, love covers a multitude of sins. That's a quote from Proverbs chapter 10. And maybe you say, well, what does that mean? Love covers a multitude of sins. I think basically what he's saying is, is this. A primary expression of love is forgiveness. It's forgiveness. Wasn't Peter the one who went to Jesus one day, back years before when he was a disciple and thought he was being all magnanimous and said, you know, Jesus, how many times should we forgive someone when they sin against us? Seven? Thinking, you know, seven? Yeah. And Jesus said, Peter, how about 70 times seven? That's a multitude of sins, isn't it? To forgive 490 times, to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. And Peter says, look, as we draw near to the end times, make sure your heart isn't getting all gunked up with the offenses that are being committed against you. Let them go. Forgive them. Because when Jesus comes back and you lock eyes with the second person of the the Holy Trinity for the first time, You're going to feel extremely foolish if you've let your heart get all gunked up with petty offenses. It's all going to seem very petty in that moment. Let it go. Cover over multitudes of sins, he says. And then he says, serve. Serve. Serve others. And he mentions two ways. He says, serve others by cheerfully opening up your home to them, offering hospitality. And it's interesting, the word actually means to love strangers. Offer hospitality, love strangers. You know, in those days, there were scads and scads of these itinerant preachers and teachers and evangelists who were traveling all around, and there was always a need for lodging. Also, as persecution was intensifying, families were being displaced from their homes. They needed a place to stay. We lost our home. 
And so Peter says, look, serve one another in the body of Christ. Don't sell your home and move to the mountains. Open up your home. Invite people in. Just as one practical application around here, we're in a season where more and more people are wanting to get into our small groups. And you heard John and Shanna share about their small group experience and opening up their home. And We couldn't get everybody in small groups right now if everybody wanted to be in one, in part because we don't have enough homes. And so I'm hoping that some of you will offer to open up your home to a group meeting one night a week, a couple hours, and say, yeah, I'll, I'll let some folks come into my home and be a part of that group. Maybe they're strangers to me. I don't know, but I'd be glad to do that if we share the same faith in Christ. Now, if your home is infested with roaches, you know, or it's structurally unsound and the ceiling might kill people, then we'll let you off the hook. Or if you're an obsessive, compulsive sort and your, your house is needed a pin, needed as a pin and you don't want to let anybody touch anything in your home because it'll get contaminated, okay, we'll let you off the hook. But if you're between those two extremes <laughs> and you'd be willing to consider that, be willing to receive a call about the possibility of having a small group meeting in your home, then on the back of your card before we're done today, just write small group host, small group host. Be willing to consider that. Might be a big step for you. But that would be doing what Peter's talking about here. Showing hospitality. And then he says, not only serve by showing hospitality, but serve others by using your God-given spiritual gifts to bless them. Now, I can't give a long teaching on this now due to time because this message needs to be done in three minutes. So you'll have to look elsewhere for your teaching on spiritual gifts. Suffice it to say that every one of you who follows Jesus Christ has been given by God a gift unique to you that enables you to serve others and bless others in the body of Christ. Spiritual gifts. You have that. Many of you are faithfully using your gifts to minister to the body here, like John and Shanna are doing. Many of you are doing that. That's awesome. That's where the joy is. There's great joy in serving. Some of you are still trying to find your place, your role, your sweet spot. And I would say to you, don't give up. Don't say, well, I tried serving in the nursery and that was a bust, so I'm, I'm history. Don't do that. Keep trying. Try other things until you land on a place and a role where your gifts are being maximized and, and you're feeling that fulfillment and that joy. It's like, yes, I'm doing what I was created to do here. Verse 11 Peter mentions two broad categories of gifts. First, he says, if anyone, what? Speaks. Big, broad category of spiritual gifts. Speaking gifts. He should do it as one speaking the very words of God. These are spiritual gifts like teaching and preaching and encouraging and leadership and words of wisdom and words of knowledge. Those kinds of gifts. Speaking gifts. Some of you have speaking gifts. You ought to be using them. You ought to be speaking the words of God. And then he says, if anyone serves. There's another big, broad category of gifts. Serving gifts like mercy and helps and hospitality and prayer and administration. More behind the scenes, but still important. He says, if you have a serving gift, you ought to do it with the strength that God provides. Sometimes after a service, someone will come up to me and say, uh, Pastor Steve, I really get a lot out of your messages. And... Uh, 
sometimes I reply, I tell you what, if you'll keep using your gifts, I'll keep using mine. Deal? The body needs all of our gifts, speaking gifts, serving gifts, all of us doing our part. Now notice what it's all for. Notice what Peter says should be the intent of our serving, our loving, our praying. Actually, the focus and intent of all of our lives. What is it? Read it aloud with me. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So why do we seek to live a holy life that's countercultural? To glorify God. Why do we accept Christ's call to suffer for his name and even to die for him if it comes down to that? To glorify God. Why do we say goodbye to the old life and try to rid ourselves of the remnants of sin that seem to cling on to us? Why? To glorify God. Why do we love more and pray more and serve more and more as we see the last of the last days getting nearer and nearer? Why? To glorify God. That's what it's all for. I need to remind you and me today that the reason you exist, the reason your Creator puts you here, whether you're saved or not saved, is to glorify God. That people would see your life and go, God must be glorious. You're supposed to be a walking billboard advertising God. So that people look at your life and they go, oh my. God must be amazing. God must be awesome. To see how Joe has changed or to see how Mary has changed, they they, they ought to look at our lives and say, God must be great. He must be worth living for. He must be worth dying for. We exist for the glory of God. Amen? That's why we're here. That's why we love. That's why we pray. That's why we serve. That's why we give why we worship. And then the very last word of this section, what is it? Very last word of verse 11. Amen. (laughs) That's the last word. That's how he finishes up. It's like this doxology and then he finishes with, it's like he's writing, it's like, man, that is good stuff. Amen. Exclamation point. (laughs) Amen means so be it. May it be so. Can you say amen? amen. <laughs> may it be so. Can you say, may this be so of me? May my life glorify and bring praise to God. May I serve and pray and love and live my life, living or dying for the glory of God. Amen. Can you say that? I hope so. I hope you can. I hope I can. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our great God and Father, I really do hope that I can say that truthfully. Amen. And that I really mean it. That my life will be all about the glory of you. Not my glory, but your glory. Lord, I thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus to come and suffer and die on that cross. To bear our sins, take our sins upon himself. Pay the price. Lord, some of us in this room today, we are 
truth be told, we're dabbling around in the old life again. The residue of the old life has clung to us and we're, we're picking around in it again. We're dabbling in it. We're hoping no one will know or find out. And Lord, that person, that gentleman, that lady needs a wake-up call from you today. Would you use your word to just remind them of how empty the old life really was? Lord, would you call us into the kind of Christianity that we would truly be countercultural? And whether we live or whether we die, we would say, I want God to get glory in my life. Get us there, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the, the challenge of your word now. I pray in Christ's name.